Hello, welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The coronavirus death toll is rising, the hospital beds are filling up, and governments across the globe are under pressure to do more, if doing rather well in terms of approval ratings so far. The Prime Minister himself is working in isolation, and Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, is his designated survivor. So we'll be asking what that means and how a government functions when the person in charge is absent from the room where it happens. Meanwhile, in the US, Donald Trump has swung around, not just to accept the gravity of the situation, but to urge Americans to do much more. But the governors of the 50 states are each taking their own view. We'll take a closer look at the Trump administration's handling of the crisis and whether it's an advantage or a handicap for the US to have the federal system of government of which it is so proud. Before we start, really quick reminder about our new sister podcast, IFG Live. All the panels, talks, updates, discussions that we usually be holding in our London headquarters are taking place online, and you can listen to them as podcasts. This week, you can hear our fascinating discussion about the role of special advisors, as well as a closer look at what civil service reform, remember that, back from Dominic Cummings in uh, Christmas, what that might look like once this crisis has eased. Find IFG Live on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get inside briefing, or at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And today, two IFG stalwarts are joining me from their homes on either side of London. Senior fellow Kath Haddon is with us. Kath, how are you? Hello. I am all better from uh, suspected coronavirus, but I'm well now, thankfully. So, uh, yeah, through the other side of it. You, you have been much much on our minds. Tell us just a bit of what, what's happening in Parliament, though, where you keep a, a watching brief. Lindsay Hall, the Speaker of the Commons, has called on the government to set up a forum for MPs to be able to quiz ministers. Uh, could this work? I, it could potentially. And they're going to have to think about how they innovate in this way, because, uh, you know, we don't know how long this period of, of lockdown is going to carry on. But we saw with the Prime Minister getting ill, you know, just how easy it is for this to spread around. So the idea of Parliament getting back together anytime soon doesn't seem to be the way to work. Select committees are currently working virtually. So uh, there's hope that they can innovate in that way. But I think there's a lot more logistics to thinking about how they would run uh, some equivalent of the House of Commons chamber through sort of virtual networks. So I think there's a lot of thinking going on behind the scenes at the moment. Well, thanks for that. I'm very good to hear your voice again, hear you sounding well. Jill Rutter, our associate fellow, is back in the virtual studio. Jill, how are you getting on? I'm getting on fine, actually. I'm uh, surprisingly well and surprisingly busy. There's surprisingly amounts to do, despite being at home all the time. Uh, you're our prime uh, tennis lover, in fact, responsible for all the tennis-themed mugs in the IFG kitchen. Is Has it been the cruelest blow that Wimbledon's been cancelled? Actually, I think it's very interesting. It's very interesting. I think the BBC desperately still trying to have a sports slot every day, which is just a sort of review of today's cancellations and things like that. Tennis is quite interesting because tennis works on a very annual calendar. And it seems to me that actually the easier thing is just to say 2020 didn't really happen uh, rather than try and rejig the schedule and stuff like that. So, uh, but it's disappointing. It's very, very interesting to have sports channels with zero zero current sport going on. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today from across the Atlantic by David Smith, the Guardian's bureau chief in Washington. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are you one of those following the, da- the president's daily briefings or like some of the big American papers, do you reckon there's not much value in that? Uh, I go along about once a week because we're on a rotation and um, the value is certainly questionable in that uh, Donald Trump stands there makes a lot of misleading statements, uh, tries to bully 
some reporters and, and, and tries to run them um, like mini versions of his um, infamous uh, campaign rallies. Um, but amidst all of that, there is some expertise, some medical officials saying some relatively useful things. And uh, as a political story, uh, you know, we're watching Donald Trump, the, the first US president elected with no previous political or military experience, uh, facing the greatest test of his life and um, by, by many accounts, um, failing it dismally so far. Mm. Just give me a flavour of how Washington itself as a town is handling this. I, I spent years living there as, a, as another bureau chief of the Times. And um, it seems to be it's the kind of thing that Washington would not be very relaxed about. No, um, like many other American cities, it's uh, it's in an official lockdown now where um, actually uh, we got phone calls uh, from the mayor of Washington uh, barking at us, uh, do not leave your house. Um, and, uh, so, um, again, quite ghostly, quite eerie. Some of those famous uh, monuments and memorials um, deserted and... Um, uh, also, uh, you know, shopping malls, uh, just the streets, uh, very, very quiet. Um, the curiosity has been that um, uh, Congress continued to operate well, well into this crisis, and it's full of people in their you know, 60s and 70s who are very vulnerable to the virus, and some of them did come down with it uh, non-ultra-seriously uh, yet, uh, but, but that in itself was a health hazard and... and Members of Congress had to sit several seats apart, just like the British Parliament. And, and then the White House um, still is operating. And, and even yesterday, you saw uh, Trump and others on the podium not observing social distancing, um, whereas the reporters at the White House, occasionally including me, we, we sit in that briefing room several seats apart and, 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 and worried that uh, if there's anywhere in the whole of Washington we're likely to get this virus, it might actually be um, in the White House itself. Well, let's use that as the point to take to talk about our first question, who's in charge? And let's start with this. I mean, simple question, but maybe it isn't that simple. Boris Johnson's been in self-isolation in Downing Street, food left outside his door for him to tug in over the mat. Matt Hancock, the health secretary, is also in isolation. Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, has got symptoms and is also locking himself away. And cabinet meetings are taking place on Zoom. Uh, yes, we really are all in it together, or at least those with a good internet connection. And press conferences are taking taken by whoever's still standing. So, Kath, tell me, can a prime minister actually lead the country from his bedroom? Well, I mean, he can when his bedroom happens to be above the office he would have been in anyway. Um, the you know he's as far as we're aware he's up in number eleven flat, so he's taken that over from the chancellor. Uh, the chancellor is is back in his uh, family home. Uh, so he does have the benefit that, you know, the house in which he lives uh, is actually the office. Uh, and he also has a sort of massive support staff who are uh, presumably making sure that he has everything that he needs to be able to do his job. The main thing, though, is the the logistical challenges of all of this. And, and the government, to some extent, would have had to be doing that anyway, because, um, you know, this the isolation, the quarantining of people means that, it, that, you know, they've been moving more and more to virtual meetings. They've been having to think about how to do things virtually. Um, so it seems like it was inevitable that they would have to work out how to do virtual cabinet meetings um, in this way. Um, so for the prime minister, the biggest issues really, I think, are um, more about those logistical uh, stuff of getting papers to him. You know, normally all ministers, they get a physical box with actual papers in it. Um, 
one presumes that they've now had to be using more virtual, so email much more, which, you know, to the rest of us is is what we're used to doing. Um, so there's a lot of issues around that, as far as we're aware. And that, that raises security question. That raises it security does. Question, it so. does. And I think that's the, the big question in all of this. Uh, we saw the Prime Minister the other day um, tweeted out a picture of uh, the Zoom meeting that he'd been having with the Cabinet with the meeting ID at the top of it, and many people sort of querying whether he should have done that. Probably not. Um, but no, he shouldn't have done that. No. <laughs> that anyone could sign in and be a cabinet man. No, he clearly shouldn't. No, he, <laughs> some things are clear and all. Yeah, that. I'm, I'm being flippant. He uh, absolutely should not. There is a password on it. But even so, I think there's a bigger question, which is just about these new platforms that everyone's having to use them. And um, we already know that across Whitehall, they use a lot of different sort of technology, different technology companies. So how they're all speaking to each other is probably uh, a real headache for many people at the moment and you, you know lots of innovation but that can mean that you can make some very damaging mistakes yeah. well the question we're talking about is um you know who is who is running yeah. the shop and right now dominic Robb is the designated survivor what does that mean well there's two separate issues one is that uh we don't have a mechanism for what happens if the prime minister suddenly re- needs replacing so this is what actual designated survivor kind of role would be and you know, David can talk about this better, but this is uh, the equivalent of the VP role of do you need a caretaker? Yeah, most, 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 most countries do have a formal line of Exactly, exactly. Like, and we don't if, hear... If the top person is incapacitated. Yeah, and we don't hear, which means that, you know, it, it would have basically have been up to the cabinet to decide... Um, you know, in the first instance on a political front of, okay, well, who's going to, who's going to run these press conferences? Who's going to chair cabinet and so forth? So announcing that it would be Dominic Raab was one way of avoiding any kind of political infighting in the cabinet about who that should be if the prime minister was suddenly ill. Um, you know, the second is this, just this question about who, when somebody substitutes for the prime minister, what does that mean? What powers do they have? What's their authority? You know, and how constitutional is it? And the reality is actually a lot of it comes down to the sort of informality of, um, you know, do their colleagues listen to them? Do they then chair the meetings? And does everyone then uh, listen to their authority in the same way that they would for the prime minister? Um, so again, it comes down to much more about the sort of politics and how they work as a team. D- David, do you want to take us through what happens in the States? Because there is a very formal line of succession, isn't there? Yes, um, there is. And uh, obviously, there's been uh, a handful of occasions in American history where we've seen it operate, at least with the, the president being assassinated and um, the vice president uh, as quickly as possible being sworn in. Uh, famously, for example, Lyndon Johnson, uh, when John F. Kennedy died. Um, and um, yeah, uh, th- this question certainly has arisen this time because uh, Donald Trump, has, as in so many other ways, has appeared very uh, blasé and, and casual about uh, the threat to his own person and uh, had a party at uh, his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, for example, where it turned out some of the Brazilian delegation had the coronavirus, but uh, Trump took a test and it proved negative, but it did get people talking. And if indeed Trump was incapacitated, then um, uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, would take over. If he was out of action, and, and again, he's been standing very close to Trump and others, so it's not inconceivable, the torch would pass to um, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, which uh, even on just on a political level makes um, Trump and Pence's behaviour somewhat surprising and that uh, many Republicans will tell you their worst nightmare is Nancy Pelosi being in charge of the country and then, of course, was the, the architect of uh, Trump's um, impeachment in 
you know, what, what now feels like a, a lifetime ago. After that, it swings back to Secretaries of State, doesn't it? Right down to the Secretary of State for Homeland Security, I think. Yes, well, um, Nancy, Pelosi, <laughs> Nancy Pelosi herself, of course, has just turned uh, 80. Uh, if, if she was not able to do the job, it would be the, the president pro tempore of the Senate, who is uh, Charles or Chuck Grassley, um, a, a Republican from Iowa, who's uh, pretty loyal to, to Trump. And, and then, yes, after that, as you say, uh, we'd be in even more unprecedented territory. And it would be, um, I think, cabinet secretaries and, and, and others. But um, even in these times, no one is quite expecting it to go that far. Well, they're kind of 20, 30 people to die in a, in a row. No. Um, but if it, just to be clear, it covers temporary illness, uh, doesn't it? Not just... Um, uh, not not just um, assassination, death of the president, and so on. So, if the president's having an operation or is is laid up with coronavirus for a week or so, uh, would the vice president take over then? Yes, that's right. I think it's when they're deemed to be incapable of doing the job, and and of course um, there was infamously some confusion. Uh, for example, when Ronald Reagan uh, was shot, one of the officials in Washington said, "I'm now in charge," when in fact technically it was the vice president, and so on. So they've they've not always handled it very cleanly in the past. Um, but, um, but, but, but yes, um, if Trump just cannot do the job, which um, some, some would argue is the case now, but uh, if he can't do it, then uh, Pence would uh, be in charge. Hmm. An interesting point you raised, I mean, that Trump's uh, sort of casualness about it, at least at the beginning, because he's, he's made a big thing of being a germophobe, hasn't he, in other contexts, uh, but not this one, apparently. Yes, that, um, um, that, that irony has been noted that, that he, of all people, who was very reluctant to shake hands often, um, very, very big on hand sanitizer and, and so on. And, and, and yet in this instance, um, he's, uh, he's shrugged it off and, and not been that um, yeah. concerned and handling microphones yeah. and all sorts. Yeah. Um, yeah, his, his, his policy of eating only McDonald's because it's clean and, and so on. Um, <laughs> Jill, Jill, let me uh, just, uh, I'd love you to bring us back to this point that Kath was uh, talking about, about the sheer difficulty of operating remotely like this meetings being held remotely papers going around by email and so on how much do you think government actually needs what used to be called facetime i think it's interesting i think i mean they're clearly the sort of casual conversations and things you do over the phone and you can still do that you can still go into sort of your private networks if you want um we've all talked about the government sort of rise of whatsapp groups between mps and things like that so i should imagine there's lots of separate conversations going on. I think the the really sort of interesting thing here is I think when they just start distributing material in very secure ways, and we saw some of that, if you remember in some of our reports that we wrote about Brexit, about some of the absolutely critical planning documents being sent through what were called ROSA terminals, these very secret terminals in a locked room that very few people had access to. And I think that's a real problem when you need to galvanize a whole machine or get comments from a lot of people who aren't necessarily easy to access if you're holding documents very securely. So there's a big tension between the secrecy you need and actually the speed of dissemination you need to make decisions against a very fast changing landscape and making sure you're involving everybody, including vitally quite often people on the front line who actually have to do the delivery and we've seen some of the big challenges around dealing with coronavirus are some of the delivery challenges that we keep on encountering at every press conference. I 
I wanted to just move us on still within this envelope of who's running the show um, to the question of uh, the, the medical advice and the scientific advice. And in the UK, we've seen a lot of Chris, Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance, the UK government's chief medical officer and chief scientist. I wouldn't quite call them household names, but certainly they are the stars of the evening news, if you like, and press conference regulars. Um, David, take us into um, how it's happening in, in, in the States, because the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases has had a big role as well, hasn't he? Yes. Um, just a very quick point, by the way, on the, the last conversation, what's been fascinating is uh, a, a presidential election uh, completely suspended and frozen in time where uh, personal interaction is is everything for both uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden in their different ways. And, and Trump has had to give up on his uh, big campaign rallies. But um, but yeah, um, uh, these um, these daily briefings in Washington are a, a real mishmash. Um, there's some of Trump's uh, bombast and uh, uh, just general sowing of confusion, but um, somewhere also there, there's there's medical expertise, um, as, as, as he has put it. Uh, it's really it's made stars of um, Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks, uh, two seasoned professionals. Uh, Fauci actually has a lot of bipartisan support. Uh, I think he's in his late seventies, uh, a very distinguished uh, scientist, and uh, he has done some very useful interviews uh, all, all over the media, including even you know Comedy Central's The Daily Show, just giving that very fundamental advice on um, washing your hands, on social distancing. On, on all the things that will hopefully um, flatten the curve. What about the state governors? There's something that, you, that, that there isn't really a parallel um, in the UK, not even with the devolved uh, nations quite. Uh, what about the governors deciding to go their own way on some of this? I, had, I was talking to an economist in Maine uh, last night who said, well, you know, there really isn't an, a lockdown as you would see it in, in, in Europe and uh, or maybe in California, but, uh, no, you know, not here. It's very strikingly different um, from from most countries where uh, the 50 state governors have so much autonomy uh, and have been making so many decisions on when to order people to stay at home and when to close schools and, and restaurants. And I think uh, it's not a perfect system, but on balance so far, it's actually been a positive for the United States um, you know, because there is such a, an unreliable person in the White House because that approach has been so confused. Uh, state governors have been able to really step up and um, uh, and do as they see fit, and um, uh, it's it's been interesting. Um, uh, you know, in New York, by far the the hardest hit state. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, probably faces some legitimate criticism for not acting soon enough, but at the same time. Um, has proved the the sort of the media breakout star in a way with his daily briefings, which contrasts vividly from Trump's and uh, where, you know, rather reminiscent of um, Rudy Giuliani, the mayor of New York after the 11th of September 2001 attacks. Uh, Cuomo is a, is a reassuring voice. Um, uh, he's you know, providing real leadership in many people's eyes and, and even a bit of remorse, I think, for some Democrats. Why, why didn't we nominate him for president? Um, Gavin Newsom in in California, I think, is widely seen as doing a good job. Um, there are there are others as well, and 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 this is the strength of the system. I think when when you have a president making missteps, um, 
some of these state governors at least have been able to do a lot themselves. Um, and indeed, they will even make- I, I find this fascinating. But even if you didn't have a president making missteps, uh, missteps, is there a strength to it in the sense that they are all trying out different uh, ways of tackling this, or is there a weakness in that this is a time when you really need a kind of central uh, policy of we are we are as a country going to tackle it this way? I think, uh, like most things in life, the answer is both. <laughs> there are strengths and weaknesses. Uh, you know, it's obviously such a vast country that uh, you need some kind of decentralization. Uh, one of the weaknesses we've seen, Andrew Cuomo in New York has complained that in this uh, desperate race to get enough equipment, the states have ended up in a, in a bidding war against each other. Uh, he compared it to eBay, that uh, they're all trying to get their hands on these breathing machines, these ventilators, and uh, that they end up you know, bidding against each other. And, and then to top it all, the, the federal government comes in and bids and pushes the price even more. So at times like that, you really wish there was some better central planning and Cuomo has called for that. Uh, indeed, uh, another weakness, uh, there have been some state governors who have, like Trump, downplayed the crisis, uh, tried to shrug it off, hope it would go away. The the governor of Florida, who's a Trump loyalist, um, and Florida has a very old population uh, statistically, um, he's been uh, criticized uh, for, for that. Um, so it's a, it's a real moment for some governors to shine and others have been uh, have been found wanting. Jill, you've been pretty critical of the government's approach uh, to communications here, much more centralized country. Um, do you think it's getting any better? Uh, I think they've had a very bad week, actually. Um... I thought they recovered. I was. I felt slightly guilty because I wrote. Uh, I wrote a comment on the Institute for Government uh, site saying the government wasn't doing very well, particularly after Boris Johnson. Uh, I don't remember. It seems ages ago. About uh, uh, two weeks ago, gave that press conference where he basically said to the press, "Aren't you really all a bit bored here? Do we really have to go on doing this?" That's paraphrasing a bit too much. And then the next day. Uh, I thought Rishi Sunak uh, used the press conference very well to announce one of his many packages. I thought they then slightly lost the plot again over the weekend. But I think one of the things that people are getting increasingly frustrated by now, I think, is that the same questions come back repeatedly from the press. And there's a sense that ministers are just sort of reverting to the same cliches about we're ramping up testing, we're going to do this, this is coming. And nobody's really getting an answer on why is the UK behind, you know, we're always benchmarking our performance against Germany. Maybe it'd be better for me to just say, actually, Germany's the real outlier. If you look, we're in a very similar position to France, Spain, Italy, or whatever they want to do. But they just don't seem to be able to give an answer. It's quite interesting. Alistair Campbell, of course, Tony Blair's notorious director of communications, has been writing quite a lot of, uh, a lot of comments, both about how the government should get its communications act together by having a much more standard format that's moving to that a bit, being much more factual, but also giving advice to the press about how rather than just each aim to get the one clip they will use on their news bulletin answering their question, actually hunting more as a pack to pick up, because the format is you get one question but no follow-up, to pick up and actually say, well, actually, you just didn't answer Laura's question. You know, would you like to do that? And, you know, from Beth Rigby and then maybe from Robert Peston to actually go around and try and pin the government down. So I think actually if, if 
they may have to start rethinking this format because at the moment I think they're just proving a source of frustration rather than enlightenment. And you'll have seen from the headlines on Thursday morning that yesterday's pre the press conference they did on Wednesday with Alok Sharma really didn't uh, seem to be a big success at all. So uh, left people extraordinarily frustrated. Yeah, it's been a week of, of, of not, enough, not enough testing and so on. Kath, what do you reckon? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's one of those difficult things in any crisis that, um, you know, it goes through phases of the shock of it first happening when um, everyone's scrabbling to understand it. I mean, that's the other thing. The press and everyone is trying to understand more and more of what are the issues, what's the science around it all, you know, um, and, and how to know when the governments are, you know, telling them, you know what is actually going on and, and where the sort of gaps are and I think somebody tweeted out the, the newspaper headlines that came out on Thursday morning and sort of said you know the the, the press now seem to have found uh, the the chink in the armour of, of the government and, and really seem to be going for them and I think a lot of that is about actually the way in which they're we're all learning about you know the the specific nature of this crisis learning sort of facts that then I mean you've got a lot of political editors who are the ones who are leading on it you've got health editors science editors and so forth who are also doing questions but the fact that it's political editors you know they're all having to learn this and and it's only over time that it becomes more and more clear where the sort of gap is between what the government says that they're doing and the kind of outcomes of it and where people can judge them properly on it. I think it's very interesting the point about the political editors because I think sometimes they miss the significance of what is being said. So there's an absolutely critical moment when Chris Whitty announced the change in testing strategy from testing people, doing the sort of containment strategy of testing people who'd been, uh, been close to someone who now had symptoms to actually moving it just into hospitals. And nobody at that press conference seemed to pick that up and say, actually, what are the implications of what you're doing? And we're, for the last couple of few weeks, we've been living with the implications of that decision or why are you doing this? And I think, you know, I think it's really interesting about who is in the room and the fact that actually, in many ways, like Brexit, our major media are treating this as a political story rather than a health, a science. That's a really, uh, really interesting story. point. I mean, so there's two wings of it, really. David, I wonder, you were taking us into this before, and I'd love your sense of how the media is doing in, in the States, both on, um, on, on, on the science and on trying to help people calibrate their sense of alarm and what they ought to do, as well as the big political story that this is. Yes. I mean, I think uh, there are three massive stories going on simultaneously here. One is a public health crisis. The, the second is a, an economic uh, crisis. And again, just some astonishing unemployment numbers out of America today. And then thirdly, the, the one that I mainly focus on as a political journalist here, which is a, a crisis of uh, leadership. Um, and, and so certainly um, when I'm writing about these Trump press conferences, uh, inevitably, uh, I, I guess I am looking at through that prism of the political story and putting it in the context of Donald Trump as a businessman turned politician and uh, the way at times he may use this crisis even to push through some of his own agenda. Only yesterday he was again talking about uh, the border wall. But in, in general, um, I think the, the New York Times and the Washington Post, which really dominate the newspaper market now with 
huge staffs and a lot of resources. Uh, I, I think they're doing a pretty pretty good job. The New York Times, uh, obviously, is at the heart of this crisis in New York and is doing some great reporting, not only on the politics side of it, but but as as others are saying, they're um, getting into the the health of it, the science of it, and and also perhaps what's you know most compelling uh, journalistically about all of this, of course, the the, the, the human. Uh, giving it a human face, the, the, the stories of, of victims, of sufferers, of, of healthcare workers in nightmarish conditions in hospitals. For us at The Guardian, this is a, a challenge. We're sort of debating, can we, should we actually get reporters out of their homes to be on the streets, to actually go to hospitals? Is it, is it safe enough? Um, social media has changed that dynamic somewhat in terms of enabling healthcare workers to post videos on YouTube of what the conditions are like. There are obviously also privacy concerns there in terms of hospitals. But I've, I've certainly heard some media critiques in the US say that this, uh, this is a story where the, the politicians are the easiest things to cover, so they get disproportionate coverage, whereas what we're not really seeing for all sorts of safety and privacy reasons uh, is the, the, the front lines, the, the, the victims, the, the people um, struggling for ventilators and hospital beds, the people saying farewell to their loved ones on uh, FaceTime and uh, Skype. And, and so the teasing out that human interest story is really important. Uh, the New York Times, for example, is doing uh, pen portraits, is doing web pages about uh, the people who've been lost some echoes there of, uh, of 9-11. If I watch Fox News, do I have a different take on the crisis to if I watch uh, MSNBC or something like that? Is it, is it very polarised coverage? Yes, that's a great point. Um, just yesterday, uh, I think 70-odd um, lawyers and thinkers and academics and uh, distinguished persons um, sent, a, sent a letter to Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan, um, very fiercely condemning uh, Fox News uh, for basically, essentially having blood on its hands because its uh, its coverage of the coronavirus uh, early on, especially, was uh, again echoing, amplifying Trump, maybe even shaping Trump's thinking in terms of downplaying the threat, uh, minimizing it, just not taking it sufficiently seriously um and and certainly there is an argument here that uh fox uh has uh, played a part in making this crisis as as bad as it is um whereas uh, as as ever as we've seen particularly in the trump era cnn and msnbc give a very different picture and uh, as one would expect are much more critical of the trump administration uh I mean, uh, again, rather like Trump, I think Fox is now playing catch up. It is taking it uh, much more seriously. And that's been reflected in opinion polls where um, a month or two ago, uh, surveys suggested a a huge gap in terms of um, left and right Democrats and Republicans, how seriously they took the coronavirus, whereas now that gap is uh, narrowing and increasingly more and more people on both sides of the aisle kind of realize what a big uh, threat this is. Um, but, but, but even so, um, you still have uh, Fox uh, pretty much uh, pro-Trump and the other networks are very critical of Trump. 
Right. Let's pick up this question of the crisis of leadership and look at um, a bit more detail about how the US and UK are approaching this differently. And to followers of the US, of US politics here in the UK, particularly if you follow Twitter, Donald Trump has seemed to be all over the place, as we've just been discussing, contradictory statements and U-turns from dismissing it all to suddenly uh, musing over whether the whole country should wear masks and then disparaging Boris Johnson for moving too slowly. And yet, the interesting point, there is in the US a Trump bump in the opinion polls. David, wh- where did that come from? Uh I was just interviewing somebody that about today, actually, and and, um, his argument was uh, Americans in particular, perhaps, do tend to rally around a leader at a time of national crisis and embrace the flag. Um, And uh, that may be part of it with Trump, as as it was uh, for George W. Bush after September 11th attacks, and, and also to a lesser extent for Barack Obama after the killing of um, Osama bin Laden. Um, there may also just be a simple effect of um, you know, low expectations uh, after that period of absence. Uh, Trump did suddenly seem to, to step up and take the issue more seriously. And uh, perhaps he's getting some uh, reward uh, for that. Um, he declared How's his comment that, that maybe a couple of hundred thousand Americans would, would die and that must, might still mean that government's doing a, a great job? How did that go down? <laughs> Uh, I have not seen any polling on that yet. Um, we'll we'll have to see. I mean, uh, he he declared a national emergency. He described himself as a wartime president. He seemed to get a bump from that. Then he backpedaled again. He talked about uh, we'll try to reopen the country by Easter. Uh, now again this week, he's suddenly returned to being being somber with, as you say, these uh, very dark, uh, dizzying predictions. Uh, he described as uh, you know a, a horrible time to come um it's still very early days and and obviously all of this um is happening in a presidential election year um tell me one thing is there a chance the election might not even take place um no one here is saying that just yet um although in a climate where you know the olympics goes down wimbledon um and then uh, yesterday a lot of people expressing doubts about the democratic convention you can't rule anything out, but um, uh, the, the good news, many people would say, is that Trump himself has no power to postpone or cancel the presidential election. It's um, it's in the Constitution. It would it would take an extraordinary act of Congress. And and right now, I think states are preparing uh, absentee uh, postal ballots, and you know, really determine that the the show must go on. Mm. And, and Kath here, I mean, with as much stately rigidity as the American Constitution can bring to bear on anything, the Labour leadership uh, race is finally coming to an end. And on Saturday, we'll find out the name of the new leader. And unless something remarkable happens, it's going to be Keir Starmer. But he's got a really tricky job, doesn't he? He does. I mean, you know, the first thing is, uh, you know, similar to Joe Biden is even getting that airtime. The Labour leadership is now going to be announced as a sort of online uh, announcement. There's, you know, the, the candidates have been told to record their own speeches that will then be posted up. But 
Um, you know, from the get-go, he'll be wanting to look for sort of opportunities where he can make his mark. But it's a really tricky one for getting the tone right because, you know, on the one hand, it's a national emergency and you want to be looking like you're working with the government in the national interest where that is right. But on the other hand, you know, it's a really important role for the opposition, along with the media, along with select committees, of scrutinising the government and challenging them. Um, but again, it's it's how he does that, how he gets the tone right, you know, and also that this is going to dominate, unlike the things that one assumes he would have wanted to talk about uh, when he was first plumbing for the job uh, those many months ago. And he won't have things like prime minister's questions and so forth to to do unless and until such time as we're doing all of those via Zoom. And then we'll have to see how good he is at, at Zoom meetings. Yeah. And of course, the government's taken up part of the space that he wanted to put Labour in, uh, apart from anything else, spending a great deal of money yeah. on, on all, all kinds of things, and had already taken that space yeah. in, in terms of regional levelling up and so on. So he's got a battle of ideas yeah. and a battle of tone. and He does. And, 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 yeah. and a lack, a lack, Sorry, of, a lack of platforms. Yeah, and actually, it's a really interesting question about alongside whatever he says on on the current crisis on coronavirus, um, you know, what messages he starts to say about where we go after this. You know, what's there's been a lot of talk uh, starting out about, uh, you know, what is the government's exit strategy and and so forth and what happens after all of this. And perhaps that's the territory where, you know, he starts to try and make his own mark of, of talking about what the country does after this, what lessons it takes what measures stay in place all that kind of stuff incredibly uh, interesting to see if he can do that that because that really means putting words this kind of vision of the future relationship but which is changing between uh, between government and its citizens and and businesses and almost rebuilding a country and a society and its economy and putting putting words to all that and we don't we haven't heard from him things that really suggest he's got a burning vision it's it's all really to come if if it is no No. And I mean, he's got many years to go before an election. So he's also got the risk that, you know, any ideas that he puts forward at the moment, the government can choose to adopt them for themselves. So really, he'll be waiting for such time as the government strategy is clear and he can see how he fits alongside that. Jill, I, I must ask you, you know, amazingly, uh, along with all those, you've written so much about Brexit, um, as well as all this going on, the US-UK trade talks are apparently still still going on. Can they really take place seriously at the same time as dealing with this this pandemic? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much really can take place seriously. What you hear in Whitehall is is, and I think completely rightly, is that every bit of spare capacity is being redirected into working on coronavirus. It's actually what you would expect. This is a genuine sort of life and death crisis. We heard yesterday evening that the government had. Uh, agreed with the UN to postpone the uh, COP, the COP26, the big climate change conference, due in November. It's going to be rescheduled, maybe for April, maybe for June next year, along with that long list David gave us of things like the Olympics. Um, and I think, yeah, one of the big issues lurking there is, can we really do a trade deal with the US, with both administrations really focused elsewhere? Can we do the conclude the negotiations with the EU? Interesting challenge for Keir Starmer which people are mentioning already, does he raise that or does that look as though he is still a sort of, you know, Remainer who doesn't accept the outcome of the referendum? But I think the big opening for Keir Starmer, which he might not have seen when he uh, when he first sort of put his hat in the ring, is the government you know, will have a big competence reckoning at the end of this. The major administration 
never recovered its reputation after falling out of the exchange rate mechanism, which compared to coronavirus is an incredibly minor blip. And even though it actually put in place a quite good regime for managing the economy afterwards. And I think, you know, if if at the end of the day, the verdict is the government has been not handled this competently, then Keir Starmer could be looking much more optimistically over the next four years than he might have done when he first uh, first decided to run for Labour leader. Absolutely. I'm just putting out a blog on our site, our site uh, about um, 10 ways to judge a government, any government in, in all this. Coming to the end of this, let me ask you all one thing, um, which I find absolutely fascinating. And it's, it's about how, what the relationship between governments and the tech giants uh, is going to be coming out of this. The, the tech giants, I mean, uh, Netflix, apart from anything else, um, really own the lockdown in, in Europe and everyone's turning to them and turning to Zoom and so on. And the governments may yet turn to Google to try and get location data to sort of map the disease and so on. Um, at the same time, the government still want a lot of tax from them and so on. Should we be thinking of that relationship changing? Jill, what do you, what do you reckon? That's very interesting. That hadn't uh, occurred to me. I mean, I think, oh, I think one of the things is we're clearly going to regard regard both tech, the, both the tech companies, but also our tech as part of the absolutely critical national infrastructure. I mean, one of the things that this has done has brought home how absolutely critical, decent functioning broadband is. And, you know, it may, we may see a big acceleration towards that rollout of super fast, super fast broadband suffering from being, I think, not very many streets away from you, Bronwyn. But when I looked at my broadband speed versus yours, I was at extreme broadband envy, which has actually you know, meant I've had to say no to things because my broadband is so unreliable here. You're so in a different council, think, council, but you're very welcome to come I'm, here any 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 time and use a different part of the house. So we, we can wave I at think, each other. I think, that, I think that's now illegal. But anyway, but uh, or not something you're supposed to do. Uh, put different it down part to the of the house, house, I said. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it's very interesting uh, how critical that has become, as well as the need to cooperate. So I think it is really interesting. But at some point. Uh, if they are the big survivors of a restructured corporate landscape, we are going to have to work out how we manage to get a decent share of their revenues in the tax system. Because if we've eliminated loads of bricks and mortar businesses, we will need a much bigger share of the tech people. Yes, um, it's interesting that before this happened, uh, the tech giant were um, really in the firing line. It was one of the few things that uh, Democrats and Republicans seem to agree on these days that... Uh, the giants, uh, Google, Apple, Amazon, and others, had uh, just become too powerful. And there was, uh, there was certainly moves afoot uh, for increased uh, regulation and some calling for these companies to be broken up. Um, so coronavirus has really presented a big opportunity for the tech giants to, to win back some, some favor um, after all that criticism over election interference, over privacy and, and everything else. And so we've seen... Um, uh, Apple, Facebook, Google, the others, uh, you know, making donations, uh, lending their tech assistance, lending um, equipment, uh, just being seen to be um, part of this uh, this great uh, national effort. Um, so far, at least, um, it's not gone quite as far as some of the companies who've literally been paraded at the White House um, with Trump introducing some of his corporate friends, but. Um, but so at the same time, uh, you know, in every crisis, there's an opportunity. And I think the tech giants here 
see a great uh, public uh, relations chance uh, to, to improve their image. Big rehab chance. Um, and Kath, any, any last thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, it just it puts the Huawei decision in a very different light, doesn't it? Very good point. Um, you know, when the government was was stressing the importance of getting this infrastructure, getting it early um, and, you know, making sure that the, the country was sort of prepared for um, for the future. It, that that now looks very different when, you know, as Jill says, this is now seems like, a, you know, an essential um, sort of human need uh, in a, a situation like this. And that's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My very warm thanks to Jill Rutter, to Kath Haddon, and a big thanks to David Smith for a fascinating insight into life in America in the time of corona. Thank you all for listening at home, which is where I assume you're listening to us these days. And the crisis is unfolding day by day. Governments across the globe are having to adapt their plans in real time. So here at the IFG, we're doing the same and flexing our work program to capture the scale of this and what exactly it means for government, including that point that Jill was just touching on, what exactly is legal and illegal to do in Britain at the moment. Inside Briefing is going to be back next week. Though, and our new sister podcast, IFG Live, is going to bring you the debates, the discussions, the conversations, the interviews, which we were having regularly in our building. Probably more of those even at the moment. And IFG Live comes out two or three times a week. So make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss one. You can stream us on Spotify and Acast too. And our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, is full of regularly updated comment and reports not all of it about coronavirus, I promise you. So do check it all out. And until then, keep your distance, keep washing your hands, stay safe, and we'll see you for the next Inside Reading. <laughs>